Uh, if you're able to this morning, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to, one more time, we're going to uh, read from the Gospel of Luke. And it's very old school church to stand during the gospel reading or the reading of scripture, but certainly during the gospel reading. And we've been doing a short series in Advent, breaking out of our verse by verse in 2 Corinthians, talking about um, God's good gifts. And the first two Sundays, we're talking about the body. Uh, and this is the last Sunday on the body. And we're going to talk a bit about um, how that relates to being whole in our body. We're going to raise a few issues. It's truly not R-rated. I probably scared some people away when I said that last Sunday. My apologies. Um, but so we are going to be talking about being in a body and touch a little bit on sexuality, the issues of touch, the issues of um, how, are we, how do we deal with sort of addictive practices as well. So we're going to do some of that based on Rich uh, Villodas's work, uh, The Deeply Formed Life, some Hillary McBride, and some good old looking at the Word of God, the Scriptures as well. So this morning, I want to read this passage, which may strike you as unique, uh, but hear these words this morning. This is the story of Jesus healing a leper in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Luke chapter 5, verse 12. I'm just going to read this short passage here, and it says this, Luke writes, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came to him who was covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he bowed down with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean, which is to mean whole or healed. And so he stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then he ordered the man to tell no one, but commanded him, go and show yourself to a priest and bring the offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the news about him spread even more and large crowds were gathering to hear Jesus and to be healed of their illnesses. And yet Jesus himself frequently withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. Lord, as we wrap up this part of God's good gifts on the body before we prepare for God's good gifts, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christmas next Sunday, I pray that you would work through this. And Lord, I know that for many, this idea of embracing the goodness of the body, particularly those of us formed in the church, can be really stretching and hard. And God, I'm aware today that some of what we may say may trigger different responses in people. And so Holy Spirit, come and be here as a gentle presence, as a comforter and as a counselor to empower us and guide us to take whatever the next steps we are in response to these messages that we need to take as individuals and the kind of community, the kind of church that welcomes and affirms people wherever they're at in life's journey. Because we know love changes hearts, fear does not long term. Love transforms, fear only forces external behavior modification. So God, we yield to you today. We welcome your spirit to redirect our loves and shape our desires in Jesus' name. And if you're willing to say amen, please be seated today. So good to see you all here today worshiping with us as well. Again, 
do want to remind you next Sunday we will be shifting into one more last Sunday of Advent and talking about the gifting of the Holy Spirit. I was praying with our team this morning and when I was a kid, there was a Christian artist named Sandy Patty, and I asked if anyone knows that name, and I think one person acknowledged that they know that name. Does anybody in this room know who that name is? Sandy Patty, okay. All right, a couple of you. All right, all right. And um, she had this Christmas album, and I think one of the songs on there was about the gifting of God. The Father gives the Son, the Son gives the Spirit, the Spirit gives us life that we might give the gift of love and the gift goes on. And it's like a real hooky 80s worship phrase. And you can see it's still burned in my head as a child because I heard that song. My mother played that uh, record or that album. So we'll be talking about this idea of the gifting of the spirit. And you say, well, that's sort of a strange, is that a strange Christmas story? Absolutely not. Because there's this idea of God's gifting of the spirit, that this is the gift that we can be open to. And the spirit not only moves us in salvation and power to live differently, but that the spirit gives, uh, gives us gifts as individuals and as a body. And so it's a great Christmassy last Sunday of Advent thing to focus on. And we want to do that as well. And the other thing about the spirit's gifting as, is the spirit gives gifts that we experience bodily as well. Not just a spiritual mental exercise, but we can physically in some way experience God's Holy Spirit, which we see again and again in Scripture. A.W. Tozer, an Alliance pastor and theologian of the last generation, said no one was ever filled with the Holy Spirit and did not know it. And so we want to talk about this idea of welcoming the Spirit, not only as a mental exercise, but in our physical being as well. So last Sunday we talked about, uh, are, are you guys awake with me? It seems very, very still in this room today. And you all know that I'm an Anabaptocostal, so I need to at least physically hear your voices that I know that you are awake and alive. Are you here? Yes, somebody acknowledge you. Okay, all right. Well, you're, you're, oh, you're with me. All right, good, good. Well, at least we're, you're with me in the sense that we are physically in the same space together. Whether or not we're spiritually, mentally, we'll, may, we'll see how that goes. Last week, we talked about this idea of um, sexual formation within uh, this context that Rich Villadis gave us, these images of three diets. One of the diets, of course, is the repression diet of the purity culture in so many Christian churches, particularly in the late 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. This starvation diet, this repression of our bodies and, and not really knowing how to properly and positively consistently talk about desire. Um, as one person said, the church told me that sex was evil, bad, and awful, and you should avoid it, save it for somebody you really love and get married to. Did you get that? The church said it's awful, evil, and all the things, but save it for somebody that you love and want to commit your life to. See that mixed messaging in terms of desire and sexuality. We talked also about this fast food diet where really the secular culture or the, the non-Christian culture and Christianity are sort of, when we go off the rails, are actually the same coin, just different sides of the same coin. The other side of that coin is the fast food from the starvation, is the fast food, reducing the body simply to a product, simply to urges and desires, and other bodies simply as things to be consumed. And that's sort of the extreme on the other side that we want to avoid as well. We shared some quotes from St. Augustine, uh, 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 Jamie Smith in his book, On the Road with St. Augustine, great book, by the way. Says this, the prodigal son in the story of the prodigal son was itching for freedom. When we imagine freedom only as negative freedom, freedom from constraints, think about this when we think about our bodies, our appetites, sexual and otherwise, freedom from constraint, hands off liberty to choose what I want, then our so called freedom 
is actually inclined to captivity. I'm going to say that again. The prodigal son was itching for freedom. When we imagine freedom only as negative freedom, freedom from constraint, hands off liberty to choose what I want, then our so-called freedom is actually inclined to captivity. Hear this. When freedom is simply means voluntariness, do whatever I want, however I want, whenever I want, without any further orientation or goals, then my choice is just another means by which I'm trying to look for satisfaction. Now hear this. Dial in. This is gold right here. Insofar as I keep choosing to try to find that satisfaction in the finite created things, stuff and people and bodies only, whether it's sex or adoration or beauty or power, I'm going to be caught in a cycle where I'm more and more disappointed in those things, created things, and more and more dependent on those things at the same time. Smith goes on, he says this, I keep choosing things with diminishing returns. And when that becomes habitual, whether we're talking about, again, sex or adoration or beauty or power or money, and when that becomes habitual and eventually necessary, then I give up my ability to choose and now the thing has me. I no longer have it. The thing about Christianity and this idea of goodness of body and embodiment and stuff and stewardship of things is that we say the things are not bad in and of themselves. It's when I'm trying to get my ultimate life and value and worth in those, that now what I thought I had freedom, many people as they uh, experience sometimes when they're deconstructing, not everybody, but some are in that, and they're like, oh, this newfound freedom. But eventually there's an arc that we learn in restoring our faith when we realize that those ultimate things that we aim at matter. The ultimate things I aim at with my body, the ultimate things I aim at with my appetites matter. Because if I forget those ultimate things, then I get bound by those. And now they become addictions and they bind me and they don't deliver what they promise in terms of that fulfillment and satisfaction of life that I want and desire. In fact, there's only one thing that fulfills that ultimate longing and satisfaction. It's to be filled with the flame of the love of God and the Holy Spirit. You are a fireplace and there will be some fire burning within you. Will it be that of the spirit of God or will you try to fill it with a fire that keeps going out? Well, this is this idea that we talked about with fast food diet. McDonald's will only do you good for so long. Finally, we talked about the banquet, our desires aimed at proper loves. And this is what a healthy Jesus-y centered view of the body does. It gives us the gift of the banquet. Would you say it with me? Banquets banquet, a feast that nourishes body and soul, a life of communion and joy for people, whether they're married or single or whatever stage in life, that we are made for community. And this idea of our bodies aimed at ultimate loves of flourishing and joy changes than how we approach food and sex and power and money. I want to share a few more quotes before we get into today's little word here. This is sort of the, the, the money quote from Hillary McBride's book, at least from my perspective. Look at that. I just commodified it. Well, I'm talking about not commodifying, but anyway, here. Go with the image. Go with the analogy. The body is good in a moral sense. And this is probably one of the most jesus things she says in this book. The body is good in a kind of moral sense, not because of appearance, function, or labels. I use for myself or I put on others. Your body is good because it is your home. You're gifted with that. Because of existence, 
Your very existence, because it is your existence in your home, it is morally good. I might say that's the ultimate pro-life, culture of life ethic there, that every body is good simply because it is your home. Wow, that is profound. That is deep. That is Jesus-y. Villadas said this, and Jesus coming to earth at Christmas in incarnation, his death and his resurrection, God unequivocally sanctified creation. The Christian view of creation is that it is good. Because God touched the world literally and all that is seen and unseen radiates divine presence. That is why our response to the coming of God in Jesus is to see our bodies and the created order with profound sacredness. Profound sacredness. Again, C.S. Lewis, that wonderful quote that you've never met a mere mortal. Look at your neighbor this morning and say, you've never met a mere mortal. Come on, come on. Look at your neighbor and say, you've never met a mere mortal. You've never met a mere mortal. He goes on to say that that person that you see one day will be revealed in their fullness in the life to come. In a way that right now, if you could see that, you would be tempted to worship the person sitting next to you. That's how much God values each person he has created. So this morning, let's talk a little more about Luke 5, and then I want to talk about uh, some of the sexually deformed messages, and then uh, Rich Villadas gives us four practices, four practices we want to get to as well. So hang with me this morning. I'm going a little fast. That's always a danger with me, I know. But I'm going a little fast, but you can go back and listen later too as well. First off, let's chat a little bit about Luke 5. We're not going to do full exegesis of going through it verse by verse, but I want to point a few things out about why did I pick that passage, along with what we've been referencing in these three messages, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. And if you want to go back and read those later and focus on what is going on with the material, the bodily stuff in those passages. In the last two messages, we talked more about those. But here in Luke 5 is a marvelous passage about Jesus, God in the flesh, who we are remembering during Advent and Christmas time that God puts on flesh and dwells among us. And in Luke, we have this story of a man who has leprosy. And leprosy, of course, is this skin disease that now we talk about in terms of basically it's a neurological disorder where they lose feeling and then cause, uh, you know, infections can happen, uh, limbs can be lost and so on and so forth. And probably a range of diseases, but this neurological nerve damage and so people would, their skin, eventually they would burn, they would, pieces would die, fall off. And in the ancient Jewish context, if you had these kinds of skin diseases, you were considered unclean, which meant you needed to socially isolate. You couldn't go to worship. You couldn't engage in the practices of the temple. You were supposed to stay away from your family. You were not to have any friends. You were to be socially isolated so that the, the disease wouldn't be caught. At least that was the thinking on that. And then you were also to yell if you were walking down the street, uh, or in an area when you were approaching or going down the side, the, well, they didn't have sidewalk, but going down the street, you were supposed to yell out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Now, if I were to have a charismatic moment this morning, I would ask, how often do we, and uh, how we talk about the body, how we talk about our struggles, uh, basically shout out about people, unclean, unclean, unclean. Well, anyway, that's a whole other sermon for another day. But here we have this, this, this narrative about Jesus and Jesus goes into the town and the man with leprosy has heard about Jesus and he comes to him and he bows down to him as a sign of reverence and respect and, 
and begs him, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. Clean is just another word for removing the ceremonial religious impurity, but also with the physical healing in this case as well. And Jesus, of course, says, I'm willing. But note what he does before he says the words. He reaches out his hand and he touches him. This physicality is what I want you to hear this morning as we wrestle with reordering desires. That here in this, Jesus reaches out and touches this man who is seen as ceremonially unclean, therefore uh, sort of an embodiment of sinfulness of creation. And Jesus touches him and then says to him, I am willing, be clean. Now, if I were feeling more feisty this morning, I'd say, reach out to your neighbor and say, no, don't do that. (laughs) Not without their permission. (laughs) And immediately he's healed. So we see this idea of Jesus revealing himself as more than just a wandering rabbi. Because a rabbi wouldn't do that because it would make the rabbi ceremonially unclean. Jesus was greater than this. He was uh, revealing himself as more by touching this man and then bringing healing to him. I love this idea here that we see in this passage of the goodness of God and God's caring about the flesh, the body. So as we go farther in this message this morning, let's look at this flight. We are surrounded by sexually deformed messages about the body. Everybody has a story. Everybody has a story of pain, of pleasure, of frustration, some of abuse, of nurture, of regret, of shame, and of love. And most of us have experienced some or all of these things in our bodies, and we wrestle with these stories in our bodies and the bodies of others. But as we wake up and stay engaged, we ask some questions about what does it mean to be in our body? Let me pause and share with you another Jamie Smith quote from On the Road with St. Augustine in If you don't know the story of St. Augustine, he became a Christian. He was raised, his mother was Christian. He rejected the faith, lived a promiscuous life, did all kinds of things, and eventually has this conversion of coming back to faith. He was the ultimate sort of uh, church formation, deconstruction, reconstruction story uh, in some of the ancient church fathers. And he had a weird teaching on a lot of stuff with the body, but a lot of what he's teaching about desire is spot on and good. And Jamie Smith does some great work with this. And on the road with St. Augustine, he says, but promiscuity isn't the same as sex. Well, that, that preaches, doesn't it? But promiscuity is not the same as sex. All creaturely gifts are good gifts when they are enjoyed in the right way. When I stop looking to some facet of finite creation to feed a hunger for the intimate, I don't have to reject or detest creation. And Smith shares this. He says, this theme returns over and over and over again in Augustine's defense of the good marriage, the centrality of friendship, the importance of covenant, of finding expression and exclusivity. What if consent is not enough, Smith ponders. In our culture today, we talk a lot about consent, and consent is an important concept, but what if it's not enough? This is the Christian question about embodiment. What if what we're looking for is not consent, but covenant? What we're longing for in another is something deeper. And he says this, what if only marriage will protect us? There's something about commitment of spirit, body, mind that takes this whole experience of embodiment to a new level in expressing of sexuality. So 
Philodos gives us four promising questions this morning. Are you still with me? Amen? Awake? Are we live? Yes? Okay, all right. Some of you are live. All right. How do we honor our bodies and honor the bodies of others? This is a very Christian question about being in a body. How can we reject in our daily lives these scripts or lies and disordered appetites that entrench in us deeply deformed ways? How can we work towards wholeness, healing, integrity, and love in the area of our lives? And how do we love God well with our bodies and with our sexuality? These are Christian questions about reforming how we view our bodies and sexuality. Many of us have received messages from parents, extended family, friends, and the church, and the surrounding culture. In fact, now our schools, you know, and not for a long time, have moved beyond basic biology and are doing formational aspects around sexuality. And there's a whole bunch of debates, and I know I don't want to talk about the debates, but in our culture, this is a big thing, in our schools even. The media, the internet, we lived in a pornified culture. We live in a porn-saturated world. One of the downsides of the internet and all things virtual and online. Villadas, in his book, speaks about being affected by porn early on. And he said this, these messages that there are some bodies that are worthy of love and others that are not. The other messages he received was the impulse I have must be satisfied. Sex and sexual performance define me. Or sex is only a physical act and not a means of loving communication. He goes on and says this, when love and intimacy are replaced with the flipping the flippant swiping of left or right on social networking sites like Tinder, or with the use of pornography, we end up in a vicious cycle of want. Remember that quote from Smith and Augustine? That want thinking we have freedom, but eventually we are bound by it because it doesn't actually produce or deliver what it says it will. Villadas says other people become objects. We turn them into a product, a product for our gratification. And we lose touch with our humanity. We ravenously search for new ways to stimulate ourselves and consequently we find ourselves imprisoned, endlessly searching for what can only be found in God. We find ourselves trapped by our desires, our power. Even then there is something deeper at work. This starvation diet like we talked about last week has no imagination to see sexual desire as a means towards God or a greater ends. Fast food turns sexual desire into a little God. So whether it's the starvation diet of purity culture or the fast food diet of anything goes and reduces people, both are forms of the ancient Gnostic religion and we reject them in Jesus. We reject consuming bodies. So how do we move forward? Rich gives us four practices here, and I just want to give, go through these here as we move to the last little half. One of them is, before we get to the practices, he says one of the important things to do regarding sexual formation is naming what has gone on in your life. And that may be just to yourself. It may be to people that are, are, are you have trusted. It may be to someone who you're doing counseling with or therapy. But at least this becoming aware of the lies and the scripts that you've had in your life regarding this. Now, he notes this, for those that have experienced abuse, this is difficult and trauma is not undone, but recalling stories is a start. He says this, a conscious walkthrough will allow you to expose lies you've believed on autopilot. For example, he says this, this is great stuff and I'm just sharing it directly. 
You might believe that you're only loved if you only have sex with someone. But the gospel says you're worthy of love as you are, full stop. Maybe you've built an identity on the need to sexually conquer others, but the gospel says your true identity is in surrender to God's grace. Perhaps you've lived with bodily shame, but the gospel says Jesus' broken and crucified body has the power to heal the shame you carry in your body. And so the practices are these very quickly today. Number one is this idea of sobriety. Sobriety. Would you say it with me? Sobriety. Sobriety. Sobriety most basically is about honesty, being truthful and transparent, laying down a false self. How do we get real in life with Jesus and with ourselves? The secrets that we hold on to come out in our body and keep in mind, sobriety is not just about addictions around uh, drugs or sex or, or, or alcohol. But this idea of sobriety is about being real and being truthful. And this becomes a problem in sort of purity culture and, and false holiness in the church. Jesus says we shall know the truth and the truth will make us free. But so often we reduce church to sort of this performing and hiding exercise, just like Adam and Eve as we get into Genesis chapter 3. And there's no freedom in that. And God comes to them and says, where are you? Because God draws us out into truthfulness and truthfulness is where we begin to enter into transformation. No truth, no transformation. But when we reduce the church and thank God that the church is being shaken to its core in North America, that cultural Christianity is less and less, that there are spaces opening up where people are not interested in that as a sort of a cultural form, but either want Jesus or none of it. And here's the thing, God sees you in everything you experience and God loves you and is for you. So Villetta says the first thing we need to understand in terms of practicing a sober sexuality, a truthful sexuality, is we need to have a community that we can bring stuff up in the light. For example, in our church, we have a, an AA group. It's a Punjabi AA group uh, that meets in one of our uh, spaces here. And if you've ever been to AA or NA, Narcoholics Anonymous, there is something about it focused on honesty. And if we think of the church not as a museum, but as a hospital of healing, and for some people we are the ER, the beginning triage care, we need to have a level of honesty. You don't go into the ER with a broken arm and sit there and the, and the, the physician asks, what's wrong? And you say, oh, nothing, I'm fine. Everything's fine. Well, something compelled you to go to the ER. And sometimes we're like that in church. There are seasons in our lives where we need this truthful community. And other times things are going well in our lives and that's fine. But usually there's stuff in our lives that the Holy Spirit is revealing as we grow in Christ. And in fact, I believe that this idea of what we do in community should be a house of healing and hope. Now again, AA is not the whole answer, but for many people, this idea of the initial truthfulness and ongoing truthfulness in a safe space is important. Our prayer huddles at the close of home church should be moving towards honesty, confession, prayer, and encouragement and celebration. When we get into those smaller, smaller groups within our home churches, ideally it's a place where we can be sober together about things in our lives. There should be confidentiality. Now, of course, you know, we need to understand there are spectrums with this as well, but there should be moving towards more truthfulness. Philidus puts it this way. He says, whatever we cannot name, Oh, this is, this is good right here. This is platinum. Whatever we cannot name reveals our bondage to shame. 
Whatever you cannot name in your life reveals where you are bound by shame. Think about that. Ooh. I don't know how many of you have watched the Harry Potter movies. I came of age in a very conflicted time where either watching Harry Potter sent you to hell or watching Harry Potter meant that you were aware of things like C.S. Lewis and J.R.O. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. So I have a love-hate relationship with Harry Potter, but there is a character in Harry Potter called Voldemort. And Voldemort is like the ultimate evil, evil wizard. And in Voldemort was this evil villain. Now, the archenemy of Harry, the archenemy of all that was good and just in the world, the archenemy of justice and equality, this is Voldemort, all the bad you can think of. And instead of saying his name, Early on, we learned that people were so afraid of him because of the rise of evil in the past and his temporary vanquishing and his rise again that they would say, he who must not be named, instead of saying his name, Voldemort. The only wizards who called him by his name were Harry and Dumbledore. And Harry eventually proved to be victorious over him. This idea of moving beyond this he or that which must not be named must be conquered in our lives, in your life, and in the life of the church, we must name things. This is the practice of sobriety. We need to reframe addiction, he tells us. And finally, we need to confess through prayer. Now, let me give you the last practices quickly. Number one is a sober sexuality. Say it with me, sober sexuality. The second is the practice of social bonding. And if you want to just so I know that you're awake and, and you don't, I mean, it's obviously it's a free will situation, but the practice of social bonding, one, two, three, practice of social bonding. <laughs> Marva Don said this, we rush through the act of sex prematurely in attempts to satisfy longing for intimacy, connection, and vulnerability. And she says this, in the process, we find ourselves spiritually and emotionally attached to others because we've given our bodies over without the protective gift of covenant vows. And of course, that's not automatic in marriage either, but there's an intentionality. There's this idea that she speaks of, of social sexuality we spoke to last week in Genesis 1, where we are called to relate to one another and be in a relationship, recognizing the harmony and that we're all dependent and that it all hangs together. We need to understand that in the church, we also affirm singleness, that Jesus and the New Testament writers value that, and the church should be a place of family and extended family. That there are desires that you have that are not meant to be fulfilled in genital sex. This is a Christian uh, truth that we speak. And it seems strange that we have to say it, but there's a closeness of friendships and relationships that we should be able to have in the family of Christ that, that the world seems to think can only happen or usually happens only within this genital sexuality. But we need to affirm this idea that indeed we are meant for deep relationship. And we've got to make that space in the body of Christ because people are yearning and need that. You are created for deep community with people beyond the person you're married to, beyond sleeping with someone. There is a relationship also with God that can be experienced that brings fullness of life. And our culture keeps lying to us about this thing. Keeps lying to us. Again, the church should be a place where a family, extended family, where we are known and we know others as persons. And this requires risk. I like how Villadas puts this. This requires risk, a tolerance for awkwardness. Oh, Jesus, we've got awkwardness in spades with me as pastor at Pilgrim. Amen? Aren't you so blessed? 
Just remember that. If you feel awkward, I'm probably more awkward. That's an encouragement for you. This certainly requires risk, a tolerance for awkwardness, and a commitment to others. But for the sake of our flourishing as human beings, it's unquestionably necessary. The last two ones we talk about is the practice of touch and the practice of making love. And I know I'm getting a little long here, but we'll, we'll get there. Just give me a few more minutes. We'll get there. Five to seven. The practice of touch. Say it with me, the practice of touch. Now, of course, there's some caveats with all of that. There's two areas where we go off the rails with touch. There's the abusive touch, which we read about that in the news, about people in leadership and all of that. And that, of course, is important to name there. Or the absence of touch, on the other hand. And let me talk a little more about the absence. You know, babies are often first put on the naked chest of their mother, skin-to-skin contact to help regulate the infant for that bonding to take place. We desire this physical closeness to others, not obviously the same as an infant and its mother, but we desire a physical closeness to others that is not marked by domination, using, or abuse. That there is a good kind of touch that you need to affirm in your life. When Jesus came in contact with people who had been socially, emotionally, and religiously shunned because of their body condition, he often reached out and touched them, or they reached out and touched him. Think about that. To touch people who had disease was to be regarded as ceremonially unclean, but Jesus touched them and heals them with his subversive touch, with the man of the leprosy came to Jesus He said, do you want to be well? And then he said, yes. Or he asked Jesus, I want to be well. In that case, he initiates this. And then Jesus touches him. Again, Jesus heals people. As much as people disliked the old meet and greet with handshakes, or if welcomed, the church side hug only if asked permission, it was communicating something more than words. And I would say that COVID has stolen this for many of us in the church. There are people who need those handshakes or the COVID equivalent of a, an elbow tap. There's something that happens. You notice that when you actually engage with someone in that physical way. Some of us are wired more that way. Some of us are wired less. But every one of us needs that affirmation that you're in a body. It's good that your body is here. I'm acknowledging that. Think about that. There's something that happens in our very physicality with that. Now, I would just like to say this. When Jesus did this, he was not just doing good for the body. He was restoring and building an alternative community of people who did not fit. Every church gathering is a gathering of people that you might not normally ever gather with, but for Jesus at the center. Think about that. Look around this room one more time as we move in towards the end. Look around this room. Take a look around this room. Some of these folks you would never have engaged with except for what's going on right now by the physicality of being present in the same place together because of Jesus. In my church experience growing up, we did the laying on of hands, the anointing of oil, powerful touch. And I believe that that's something we need to understand, that there is something about anointing people with oil. There's something about asking, again, always with permission, consent matters, but it doesn't exist. May I lay a hand on your shoulder and you're free to say no and pray for you. There was something about that in the context where God works in both the words and the physicality to express his love and care for one another through one another. Gentle hands of prayer are part of healing as well as spoken prayer. And finally, I left making love for last. So hopefully you can hang on just a little longer. Making love is another practice 
of sexual wholeness and being whole in our body. Again, you can be whole without gauging in sexual genital sexuality, but there is a place for it as well. And the church has taught this through making covenant in marriage. Lovemaking requires all of our being, if deeply formed. And Rich tells a story of meeting a pastor friend who was in his 70s and said they're having the best sex of their life now than ever before because it is a learning curve throughout life. Doesn't that give hope for all of us who are not 70, right? Think about that. Okay, you guys can't handle this this morning. Did I just switch into the R rating that scared half the church away? Okay. He says, lovemaking takes lots of practice. In fact, it's designed to be a lifelong practice. Amen? Lifelong. Lovemaking takes the protective context of covenant marriage, not popular or many say even realistic in our day and age. Many people are sexually active nowadays as early as their teen years and rich shares this. He says, I fully understand the fire that dwells within the deep and the deep need to quench it. However, I also understand the emotional and spiritual damage that occurs when we give ourselves over to another without the presence of covenant vows. That notwithstanding, lovemaking takes practice and it begins outside the bedroom. Boom. The practice of making love real quick. Outside the bedroom. It's not about sex in another location, which is not a bad idea, of course, he says. But about loving each other in life. Good Covenant-keeping lovemaking and the ordering of sex around marriage begins not when we take our clothes off, but when we put them on in the morning. We demonstrate passion. We demonstrate curiosity, affirmation, and playfulness, and so on. In fact, the Gottman Institute on Marriage has done a bunch of research on this and says, for relationships that are lasting, it is those that respond to their partner's bids. And what they mean by partner's bids are those gentle invitations to engage versus turning away when that's offered. And I can send out more information in my weekly email with that. But for example, paying attention to what I say when someone says, how do I look? Or did you see that squirrel? They're asking, pay attention to what I say. How you respond to that, affirming that or ignoring that. There's statistical research that says when you respond well to those bids, the, the longevity and the goodness of marriage increases versus decreases. Marriages that tend to end and blow up aren't usually over things, first and foremost, like we hear money all the time or we hear uh, oh, oh, you know, kids or this. What it usually is, is that we just stop responding to those bids, those little bids for attention. Could you please take Pooh for a walk? Or while you're up, can you grab the salsa? Responding to those requests, when you turn towards your partner versus away from them, builds up. Sex starts when you put the clothes on in the morning. Good relationship, not when the clothes come off. This curiosity, affirmation, and playfulness. Gottman Institute, great stuff about bids and turning towards one another. I could say more about that, but I'm out of time. So I encourage you to, to Google that later. Couples that divorced in their research averaged only 33% of the time replying positively to a partner's bid. At the six-year uh, measure, when it's one of the studies that they did, couples that stayed married turned towards one another 86% of the time, 86% of the time. How are you responding to those things? Those of you that were not raised in healthy marriage, at homes with healthy marriages, didn't see partners responding positively to those bids, however they came. Those of you that did see that, hopefully you're mirroring that. And those of you that need to learn that, learn that, turning towards these bids for connection Again, a bid is an attempt from one partner to another for attention, affirmation, affection, a positive connection of any type. And they often show up in simple ways. 
All right. Last things about lovemaking. Lovemaking is, communi- is communication, not simply an activity. A Christian view of sex is that it's about communication, not simply an activity, not simply reducing a person to a product to be consumed or vice versa, both directions. It's something you say, not just do. It's communicating something from me to my spouse. And if we reduce sex only to the moment, our, uh, only to the moment, our lives get reduced to transactions and even objectifying can happen. Bodies become a means to an end instead of being shaped for communication and relationship. Now, of course, the communication means all kinds of things, including preferences, likes, desires, etc., etc. But it's also about giving and receiving love outside of the act of sex. And this takes practice as we learn to share what we desire and as we learn to love each other and love even if we don't feel that we are as we wish we would be. The last thing Rich says about this last practice of making love is love making is a revelation. In and outside of the bedroom, it reveals God. It's sacramental. It's a means of grace. It's a communion of sorts. As we love each other, he says this, naked and unashamed, we enact the vulnerable, free, faithful, and fruitful qualities of love demonstrated to Jesus. He would lay down his life for us, give his body for us, pronounce forgiveness and grace, and renew us through his self-giving love. And this too is what deeply formed sex is. It's the holy demonstration of God's naked and unashamed love towards us. He says, we are at best when we are making love inside and outside the bedroom. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up as we uh, land this plane. And my apologies for going a little long, but I wanted to get this out in this message so we can shift gears as we near Christmas. I want to remind you today that sexual wholeness is part of the journey all of us are on. And God is gracious. God is gracious. And so in this, he knows that we are from dust. He knows our weaknesses. And he knows that every expression of our sexuality, this side of eternity, is somehow tainted by sin and brokenness. There is no perfect sexuality this side of eternity. But we aim for this covenant faithfulness and love. We aim for this in how we express our bodies and how we experience our bodies. I want to say this in my young life, my parents' expression, my parents were divorced. My father had an affair. My parents were divorced. I was not, in fact, I was not, my mother wanted me. My biological father did not. And so for me in my life, I want to say one more thing here and just chill out, guys. Like, it'll be okay. It's not long, I promise. It's me. Would I lie to you? Would I lie to you? Um, in my young life, you know what was really important in my formation? I saw the brokenness of my parents and they got remarried and all of that. And, but it was couples in the church who had those marriages of faithfulness and they weren't perfect, but they lived through that. It was being reparented in the body of Christ. It was seeing others who were leaning into this Jesus-y way. It was those couple youth sponsors. You know, if we get to a point one day, I believe we're going to where we have a youth group, some of you need to be sponsors, not as individuals, but as couples. Those youth need to see that. They need to see that. For some of us, it was foundational. I think of one family that was uh, sponsored and, and, and other sponsors as well. We had single sponsors, married sponsors, but that impacted me a lot to be able to see what does it mean that this Jesus-y marriage, what does that look like? So I want to encourage you in your own formation that one of the things when we live as a church in community is that we help form one another as well. 
So landing again this morning, sexual wholeness is part of the journey we're all on. The spirit of God is here to comfort and strengthen us. There is no perfect sexuality this side of eternity. And that brings up a lot of other sub sermons that we could get into, but not today. We need to be community that seeks truth, the sobriety community in our lives when we're struggling with trying to get our identity out of these things. We need to also be a place where we allow for in ourselves inner discussion, truthfulness with ourselves, some safe friends in our lives, and maybe some outside resources beyond simply church or pastoral counseling. But if we need therapy or counseling beyond where we can go very deep with that third party. And finally, I want to say this. We want to invite Jesus into our life. We want to invite Christ into our experience. Did the sound just change right now? It sounds like it just changed. All right. The very end of service, we fixed it. All right. (laughs) So hear this passage as we pray. Why don't you stand with me if you're able to do so as well? Psalm 103 verse 11 says this, For as high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is his loving devotion towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. And as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows your frame and he is mindful that we are dust. Blessed, beloved dust. So Lord, thank you for each person here. And as we finish this series today, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you that you call us to be more honest about our bodies. And Lord, I know that in Baptist land here, it may not be most comfortable to go down these paths to talk about, but the word does. It's all over the place about what, how we wrestle with being in a body. And God, I pray today for those that need to hear some affirmations or maybe need to take some next steps that you would give them the strength they need to do so. That they would welcome your spirit in Empower them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.